You're listening to The Butterfly Effect Podcast, episode number 25. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Drew Jameson, a naturopathic doctor from Vancouver. We dig into everything hormone, menopause, and gut health related, and how you don't have to live with the severe symptoms that can come along with those. If you enjoy this episode, all I ask is that you screenshot it and share it on your social media story or feed to show your love. If you have a second to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or SoundCloud, the show can continue to grow and expand its listeners. Taking the time to share it with your followers and subscribers will totally help keep it thriving, so I can continue to bring you quality episodes like the one you listen to today. This is the Butterfly Effect Podcast, and I'm Ashlyn Newlove, tackling everything from fitness, nutrition, business, life, ice cream cones, and everything else in between to help inspire people to make one change that causes their ripple effect. The Butterfly Effect podcast is brought to you by The Sweat Effect. If you like receiving discounts while supporting the podcast, visit thesweateffect.com slash podcast to see all of the podcast supporters and save money on everything from protein bars to skincare while you're at it. Welcome to episode number 25. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm a fitness and nutrition coach helping people have fun, keep fit and reach their goals while they're at it with my online program, The Sweat Effect. Last week, I received a message asking if I would like to do an IG live video with a naturopathic doctor, Drew Jameson. We met up on Instagram and the time flew by talking about everything from gut health to hormones to injuries and everything in between. So welcome to the show, Drew. Hey, excited to be here. Thanks, Ashlyn. Thanks for coming on. Of course. So the listeners know that you're a naturopath, but maybe can you tell them a bit more about yourself and even what a naturopath is? Because I'm sure some of them don't even really realize what you do. Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, I'm glad you, you kind of led with it. It was an interesting thing we had to do in fourth year of school. So we're just getting ready to graduate and we're going to hit the ground running as naturopathic doctors. And one of our business coaches said, I want for you guys to go into the general public and just ask people if they know what a naturopathic doctor is. So we were walking around town. We went to the SkyTrain stops. We went to the bus stops and we're just asking random people, what does a naturopathic doctor do? Or have you ever even heard of the term before? And I think he did that just to prove a point to us that the term doesn't really define us, right? It's maybe something people have heard before. Uh, they maybe know a few things we do, but it's, it's very clear when you say a dentist or a chiropractor, right? A dentist works with teeth chiropractor works with the neck and back but then you say naturopathic doctor and people for the most part need that educational piece on who we are what we do and how we can help them right so when i give community talks and answer this question i always put it to people very simply that we are the doctors you can come to when you have a health problem and then we go to work to find a solution for it and often we are dealing with chronic degenerative conditions that are not well treated by the standard medical system so i, I try and keep it simple for people you have a health problem and we provide a solution now our scope of practice is huge because we can treat so many different things and if i had a slide to put up right now which i do uh, when i answer this question there is many conditions and many things we do as a primary care physician and as a primary care physician we can diagnose and treat a whole bunch of stuff now when you see five naturopathic doctors you're going to get five different personalities you're also going to get five different levels of expertise because our scope of practice is so big and we can treat so many conditions each one of us has a you know those three to five things that we're really known for 
and that we really like to tackle and treat in our practice. So for me, when I graduated, I knew that sports injuries, uh, pain management, hands-on techniques were going to be a big part of it. I wanted to have that um, that athletic sort of practice, um, sports medicine-based. But I do a ton of gut health, nutrition. We were talking about at length last week. And then a lot of mental health, uh, whether it's stress, depression, anxiety, uh, and then hormone health. Uh, sleep is another big one. Those, those are kind of the main things that I'm doing day to day. If I had to say what fills 80% of my day, it is that stuff. Now you go see one of my colleagues down the hall and they're going to be doing the women's health hormones. Maybe they're treating fertility, that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's the easiest way I can put it to people. It's uh, We're also a doctor you come to see when you don't want to use drugs and surgery. It's another very easy way to describe an acrobatic doctor. We do have and own a prescription pad. But it's not obviously the main reason we went to school, and it's not our first go-to. If needed, and in certain cases, we will use prescription medication. But again, uh, we're usually thinking other things first. How can we prevent the surgery? How can we do this without a medication? How can we get people off medications? And so we fill a very important role in the medical system. And I always tell people this, like we have people coming to us left, right, and center. And if the medical system could deal with all that, we necessarily wouldn't have that that gap to fill. But the truth of the matter is the way the system is set up in Canada and North America, there is a huge, huge need for this kind of medicine because we spend time with the patients. So the experience is totally different, right? An naturopathic doctor is going to spend 30 to 60 minutes with the patient each time. Maybe sometimes shorter visits is 15, but it's never that three to five minute visit you're used to with a standard medical model. And so with that, we don't have to see 70 people a day, right? We can see eight to 12 people a day and give them good quality care, figure out what the cause of their problems are, not just suppress symptoms, but use the symptoms to guide us and then develop treatment plans and then just monitor the symptoms as we go. But we're not looking to suppress the symptoms. We're certainly not looking to reach for a drug or surgery right away if we can at all help it. And then we build people from the ground up using uh, the therapeutic order by giving the body what it needs, remove barriers to healing, correcting structural faults. That's why physical medicine is such a big part of what I do. So I borrow from chiropractic, osteopathic techniques, as well as acupuncture and Chinese medicine. So why I love our medicine so much is because it's such a just a mishmash of all the most amazing tools in the alternative medicine world that work really, really well to get people uh, back on their journey to health. So in a very long-winded way, that's what a naturopathic doctor does. <laughs> it's funny that you say that, though, but because if I was having skin issues, I would go see a dermatologist. If I was, you know, whereas when I tell people, you know, you should go see a naturopath that specializes in hormones or so then people end up Googling like, you know, in their area, naturopathic doctor for hormones or gut health or whatever it is, and kind of searching you guys out that way to find somebody that's going to help with their symptoms. Because yeah, you can't just look up, you know, a gut health, you guys don't have specific names for each of the different no. practices you have. No, we don't. And, and you can't use titles uh, that are protected. Uh, as far as the specialist title goes, that's definitely protected on the conventional side of things. So we'll say we enjoy treating or we have an area of focus in. And you know what it really comes down to as well? And, and I've learned this, uh, especially over this last year and a half, is the content I put out and the educational stuff I do, I just continually talk about the conditions and the people that I want to treat. And then you just naturally attract those people into your world. Right. So. It, it, you know, it's not a big surprise to me that I don't have a ton of people coming to me for their women's health and fertility issues because that is something that I don't have an expertise in. And I am much more comfortable seeing my colleagues down the hallway 
to deal with that. And so I talk about and educate people on the three to five things that I love to treat and I have a ton of knowledge in and I'm constantly upgrading my skills in and I have what I would consider an expertise level. And so that, that sort of helps direct people and, and flow them in your direction. And then of course, when people reach out and it's something that is not necessarily my wheelhouse, I have a huge network of people that I can tap on the shoulder and say, you know what, you'd be a great fit with this person. And I've gotten more and more comfortable over the years just admitting that where it's just like, hey, it's some crazy skin case or, yeah, some some hormone thing that just starts to to get outside my, uh, you know, my level of uh, expertise and knowledge. And then, boom, you just get them to the right person. And, and I've found that it's OK to do that because they'll love you so much more that you just got them to see the right person. And they'll be like, wow, like you connect me with the person that you knew I needed to see. And now I'm better as opposed to trying to fumble through that. And I know at first when you graduate and you, you just work with anyone and you're just an eager beaver, um, as I was in the first few years and still am. But but now I have more of a focus and more of a control of that flow of who, who I work with and how people self-select me. It's totally different now than how it used to be. And then, like I said, there's lots of other people in our profession. I'm just sort of an advocate for the profession in general that it's like if you have any health problem, period, I, I can either help you with it. And if I can't, I'll get you to someone who will. That's kind of my mandate here. It's funny you say that anybody who is an eager beaker beaver in their, um, you know, specialty, they're like, I'm, I'll help anyone. And then after a while you're like, wait a minute, this, like, this isn't my thing. And, you know, and and you end up turning down because you're like, I'm going to fix everything. And then you're like, okay, no, like this, it's not my thing to fix everything. Totally. And it's really draining. And then, yeah, you do realize over time that like that that's not your role because then you just end up being mediocre at everything and, and nobody is going to sustain a career or a practice being mediocre at everything. You need to be like the authority in a few things. And I've really realized that and started to carve and blaze my path uh, more along that line as opposed to just treating anything that walks through the door. I've definitely stepped away from that. I actually told the client the other day too, because they're like, but I've seen a few NDs about like my stomach issues or whatever. And I was like, it's like a, any doctor, like if I had cancer, I probably wouldn't just stick with the one same doctor if, you know, I felt like there was more out there that I could find. And it's too bad that, you know, the people that she did say were like, you know what, I, I it's maybe a little bit out of my scope. I should refer you to this person. Um, but she's like, but I've seen a couple people now and it it's kind of, you know, dishearten my spirits in that and I was like but it's the same like if you were going to a medical doctor and you weren't getting the answers that you wanted there you need to continue to you know reach out to and do some of the research on your own as well like you can't just rely on the doctors to refer you to other people too totally yep that is very true yep Um, so how did you even get into the world of natural medicine? Because I'm sure as you were coming out of high school you were like I'm gonna be a naturopath (laughs) yeah right I was 18 and if it wasn't for a scholarship to Simon Fraser University for football I would have never went to post-secondary I uh, stumbled around there for two years with classes just trying to stay eligible to play football it's funny how my focuses have changed so much (laughs) but yeah back then I cared about a few things right just staying uh, eligible and playing football And, and then I finally caught my stride in third year and I started taking a lot of kinesiology classes and started to study um, the body, right, and the organ systems and performance and recovery and nutrition and everything that came with that. And those are the only classes I did good in. <laughs> did pretty me- mediocre in all the other ones. And, and uh, then I started to catch my stride with the kinesiology. So I declared that as my major. 
and graduated with a kinesiology degree or biomedical physiology, whatever they refer to it now. And I worked in a chiropractic office for years uh, between medical school and when I graduated from university. So I'd always been around it. I mean, that was my first exposure to alternative medicine was an adjustment when I was 17. So right away, I was like, oh, there's a whole nother side of medicine here. This is kind of cool. Uh, it's a lot of a, just a different feel and experience from the standard medical office. And then as I went through my, my football and accumulated a ton of injuries, uh, by 23, 24, I was stuck with pretty bad chronic pain. And I was kicked around the system quite a lot, uh, given painkillers, told to stop playing football and deadlifting, just a lot of things that were crushing my spirit and soul. And I guess it just didn't really sit right. And then, uh, you know, the mental health stuff that would come with it, your mood's down, you feel like crap, and you're like, wow, is this it? This how I'm going to live out the next 75 years of my life, just pain up and down the stairs, you know, cranky joints, getting out of bed, getting in and out of a car, just simple things were very difficult. And I was, uh, like I said, offered scans and tests and painkillers. And then I was like, this can't be it. Just kind of knew intuitively it wasn't going to be the answer. And thankfully, I come from a very naturopathically focused family. My parents years prior had started with a naturopathic doctor. So they were already kind of drinking the Kool-Aid and, and, and they knew the other side of medicine was there. So my mom suggested that I see one of the local NDs around the corner from my house because he had an ad in the paper. This is back when ads in the paper worked. <laughs> <laughs> don't really work anymore. But back then they did. And it was an ad for prolotherapy and regenerative medicine and, and sports medicine, essentially, was his area of focus. And I said, what the hell at this point? I got nothing to lose. I might as well see what this guy has to say. You know, in about three to six months, he helped reverse all my injuries. And he just blew the doors off what I thought medicine was as far as like dealing with chronic pain because uh, it was very impressive. So he fixed my shoulder, my knees, my back. Uh, you know, I would accumulate other injuries over the years, wrench my ankle. Uh, go fix that uh, off and on just wear and tear stuff that he he kept up with my maintenance treatments and just quite literally blew me away and I was and I you know I was relieved at the time but then I also turned to him and I was kind of pissed off I'm like why don't more people know about this like why did the physios I, I see why didn't they mention it why did my medical doctor not say this why did that sports medicine specialist that I was referred to not even bring any of this stuff up and then within a matter of months you, you fix me with these treatments that that I've never heard about till now and he said tell me about it man he, he said I, I kind of found these you know in a roundabout way kind of like I did with my own health struggles and then you know, that was 15 years ago. And even 15 years later, I'm still telling people about this all the time. And they're like, what is that? I've never heard of it. Like I've been to massage therapists and chiron physio, but I've never heard of prolotherapy. So it's just an injection technique that helps uh, heal ligaments, tendons, and joint pain. And it works so damn well that it, it constitutes around 60% of my practice now. So in a sense, my mess has become my message where it's like that used to be just me, total mess with all this chronic pain got it fixed with prolotherapy. So then, then part of my journey has now shifted gears uh, in 2011. That's when I went back to medical school and I was like, I need to learn these tools because once I sorted myself out, I, I knew my next step was to take this to as many people as possible. And it was on my naturopathic doctor's recommendation because we became very close. That's the cool thing too. When you see a naturopathic doctor, you become close with them. You build rapport. And, you know, I have a lot of very close patients, almost as friends who like, you know, we talk often and you develop really cool relationships with people uh, at a much deeper level than I ever would, would thought have been possible with the doctor. So, yeah, me and him were super close. And he said, man, go back to school. The profession needs more people like you. You have the tools. You have the skill set. You'll make a great practitioner. Uh, our profession also needs more guys, too. So it's like 80-20. It's like 80 percent women, 20 percent guys. Oh, really? And so, 
Yeah, it's kind of it's like the flip of some other profession. Kind of like Cairo would probably be like eighty twenty guys, but it's like yeah, you see uh, eighty twenty females for naturopathic doctors, and the kind of stuff I do with the needling, the injections, the adjustments, the osteopathic techniques, I probably represent about ten or fifteen percent of the profession. So a lot of people that are listening may think they have an idea what an naturopathic doctor is, and 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 again, you, you'll meet all different walks of life in our profession. That's kind of the cool thing, and so that that's just a little bit about my journey with it. And I went back to school, and kind of the rest is history. He, he has taught me a ton. He was an absolutely great mentor all the way, and and still is. So uh, then I graduated in 2015. I've been full time practice in the Vancouver area ever since. Last five years. It's funny. All of the naturopaths I've ever seen and know are from BC. Even the one that I saw in Saskatchewan. He's was from the island too, and he was. He's like I'm, and you like you said, you see them for you know 30 to 60 minutes, so you do get to know your clients quite well or patients. Sorry, and yep. uh, yeah, he was like, oh, I'm so jealous that you're moving back to like where I'm from, and it's uh, I don't know, like maybe less people from Saskatchewan even think about going into it as a profession or something. I'm not sure, but yeah, I, it, what the listeners probably don't know, um, is that, yeah, I've also had prolotherapy, um, done by a couple different doctors and my, it was because it was a, like, Aaron was a student of yours or did you teach some classes when Aaron was in school or how did you know Aaron? So when I was in fourth year, she was just coming in in her first year. So yeah, I was about to graduate and she was starting her first semester. So we had a little bit of overlap in school, but then as soon as I graduated, I was asked to come back and teach in the physical medicine department, which I still teach into this day. And that's always something I've reserved time for because I really like staying connected to the school and the academics. I always work on my public speaking and just making sure I have the material solidified and then I can explain it really simply to people. So uh, yeah, and the students are always up with the latest, greatest research. So I, I benefit greatly by sticking around the school. And so when I was teaching my first, second, third year, Erin would have been in her second, third, fourth year. And so I, I got to teach her a few times through school. And yeah, we, we're still quite close to her every so often. It's funny. She's on the island primarily. Yeah. In a roundabout way, like we had this circle that yeah. we never knew about. So in one of our trips to the island, um, before we decided to live there, our friends own a CrossFit gym there and they're like, come to this competition in Victoria. So we were there competing. My back was bothering me like it always was. And Erin was there and she was like, yeah, I'll give you treatment. She was like doing Cairo. And I was like, who is this? <laughs> like, I didn't realize you guys like, did adjustments. She was doing, you know, some like tissue work as well. And she's like, you need to do, you need to try prolotherapy. And I was like, and she gave me a pamphlet. Again, you said newspapers. I was like, she hands me a pamphlet and I <laughs> kept it because I was like, I want to look into this. So when I got back home, and Googled like Saskatoon naturopath prolotherapy and uh, yeah, started from there. And then in our next trip back to the island, uh, went and got to see Erin a couple of times and like all the things. And I'd sprained my ankle during that time. She's like, I'll hit you up in your ankle with a little bit of prolo too. Cause it was, you know, I was like, this is some sort of magic. So after Drew and I chatted um, last week on IG live, some people were like, Hey, there is prolozone treatment as well. And I was like, now correct me if I'm wrong, because prolozone is still prolotherapy, but they're just adding an ozone injection as well. Is that, am I correct? Yeah. 
essentially uh it's just the injection of ozone gas instead of a dextrose or sugar water solution in that case and, and if you look at the regenerative injection techniques you could say they're all prolotherapy but then the question is what are you shooting so are you shooting ozone are you shooting dextrose are you shooting prp or is it stem cells because the technique doesn't really change the supplies the needles don't really change it's just a matter of what's in the syringe and they all work to stimulate healing increase blood flow turn on the immune system, bring healing and growth factors to the area. They, they all accomplish the same kind of thing. Okay. So I heard that things like um, PRP and stem cell. So for people who don't know what PRP is, right, you take blood um, and then you spin out the platelets. Is that correct? Yeah. You're trying to grab the platelet rich solution. So blood is made up of a whole bunch of stuff, right? Red cells, white cells, platelets, as well as um, just plasma. So you're, you're trying to just you spin it all and separate it into its layers. And then you're taking off the platelet rich solution, uh, which is the most healing benefits, the most signaling molecules it has a little bit of low grade stem cells in it as well. And does that need to be done under somebody told me it had to be done under imaging. So you had to be like be doing it under like, uh, so yeah, there's two kinds of injections. There's palpation guided and then ultrasound guided. So you'll see both in the regenerative injection world. So, uh, one of my colleagues up the street, Dr. Bastian, for my difficult cases that I need an ultrasound guided injection for, I will send to him. And for that reason, especially where you're um, having some more dangerous injections, you, you definitely want to do it under ultrasound. Now, when I'm doing just straight palpation guided prolotherapy with dextrose, uh, I just find the, the tissues and the spots and the painful areas with my thumb. And then we're just doing a palpation guided injection to the areas that need it. Now, if you're doing stem cells, which could be a five, ten, fifteen thousand dollar investment, and you know it's for knee arthritis or hip arthritis, which are a little bit deeper injections, and you absolutely want to make sure that you're getting a five or ten thousand dollar injection in the right place. Yeah, that's probably where you go for an ultrasound guided. Um, now for the ankles, uh, shallow spots in the low back, um, elbows, wrists, it's pretty easy to do with a high level of anatomy knowledge uh, and palpation skill you can hit exactly what you need to. And I've been doing that uh, quite consistently for the last five years. And it's funny because uh, I've done a lot of training around this and it, you know, it depends what camp you're from because there'll be some that'll just argue to the death that it's ultrasound or bust. And then I had people teach me in my training, they've been doing it for 30 years. And some of them say that the uh, ultrasound in certain places uh, can be a bit of a liability because now you don't have a hand on the patient, right? You got one hand on the syringe, you got one hand on the probe. And you're looking at a screen instead of looking at the patient. So for me, I like it if you're going to go around the neck, uh, certainly around the ribs, because you don't want to hit the lung and get near the central nervous system in the neck. So yeah, there, there's some damn good arguments for ultrasound in many places. So those areas I don't touch with palpation guided, but the vast majority of the areas I treat, no problem to just use my thumb and my good anatomy knowledge and find the attachments of the ligaments and tendons that need it and just treat that way. And then how do you know when somebody needs to like go from a prolo to a PRP? Because, you know, you're looking at what maybe a, you know, a 200, like, and I'm, I'm rounding about because I'm using Saskatchewan prices, like a $200 treatment sure. to like maybe a 700 to $1,000 treatment. When do you Correct. tell somebody that they need to take that next step? Yeah. So it's obviously someone that's non-responsive to prolotherapy and you still are pretty sure that the pain is originating for a ligament, tendon or joint. So if you're still like, yeah, it's got to be coming from those tissues, but they're non-responsive after four to six treatments, that's when you would graduate up. 
And again, if, say it's someone that has to rehab ASAP, maybe it's a high-end athlete or whatever, you might be talking about PRP on the first visit because you just want that profound healing effect now, right? You don't want and don't have the time to wait two or three months to rehab it with prolotherapy. It's like, we're talking more like four to six weeks here. What would speed that up a lot? Well, PRP, because the thing is this, if prolo is indicated, PRP is probably indicated. If PRP is indicated, stem cells probably indicated, but there's a lot of factors that go into making those decisions, right? Like what timeline do we have? Uh, is this a high end athlete or is this an average Joe? What sort of um, access do they have to money? Cause that's really going to change and vary the decision right mm-hmm. and it really depends on the person but yeah people aren't usually especially and i always tell them this I'm like if you haven't tried a few rounds of prolo like you can get three four treatments of prolo before you, you can get one treatment of prp so most times that's where we start now there is the odd person that's just like no i've read about it i've researched it uh, i got a diagnosed tear by mri it's been kind of confirmed by my specialist like I just want to do some PRP and they'll book in for PRP and then off we go. Uh, but yeah, you, yeah, there's a few things you have to weigh out there. So they're all indicated all the time if the pain's coming from a ligament tendon or the joint, but there's, there's some factors you got to consider. Yeah. Very cool. And, um, like I said, I've tried it. So it's not like I'm just sitting here asking you questions about, you know, one of the things that you've done. I've had quite a few injections because we've done my shoulder sometimes and I've done my back sometimes and Aaron hit up my yeah. ankle a little bit. So it was like, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of went everywhere, but it's good. And yeah, I'm cool. excited to get back to a place where we can do it again because we did feel that it was very beneficial. But besides that, like I see a lot of my clients dealing with like gut issues as well, because I do deal with a lot of people who do CrossFit. So yes, injuries and they were very interested in that but gut issues too and we talked about it a little bit last week you know how I was traveling we were in Bali a few years ago and uh, like my stomach was just never the same like I got really sick when I was there and it just like it flares up from time to time now and it always seemed to be when I was traveling but like do you have many people that come to you like with conditions like that we do we do. And as naturopaths, that might be the one thing we're most well known for is treating any and all digestive issues. We always say gut is the hub of health. So if that hub of health is not functioning properly, there's a lot of systems in your body that will suffer. Because I always tell people, whatever you eat and digest and absorb into your bloodstream, blood goes everywhere. So it could impact so many systems at a very profound level. So that's why it's very important to fix gut bugs whether it's fungus yeasts parasites bacterial overgrowth got to get that stuff sorted out otherwise you're going to have nutrient malabsorption you're going to have potentially constipation diarrhea gas bloating uh, all these annoying symptoms and i always tell people that none of that's normal right people just get told oh you bloat once in a while no big deal that's totally normal and i'm like no it's not you should be able to eat digest break down your food and not even realize or feel or notice that that process is going on so if there's any of those symptoms, those are whispers from your body that you must listen to. And I always say to people that if that whisper is not, you know, attended to, it just gets louder and louder and your body will just start yelling and screaming at you and it just gets worse, right? So, uh, yeah, should not have any digestive symptoms. So we've definitely got to clean up the bugs. Testing and eliminating food sensitivities is always a good idea because I always say, you know, you shouldn't just eat foods that you like. You got to eat foods that like your body. And there are certain foods that just don't like your body. And when you eat them, you feel like crap. And so you got to make sure you have the right 
foods coming in, you got to make sure that the environment is proper to break down and absorb. So it's not just what you eat, it's what you absorb. It's literally what gets through the gut lining into the bloodstream into the cells because really that's all that matters, right? From a nutrition standpoint, do the cells that power us have enough raw material nutrition to, to do what they need to do? And so we'll see this all the time, crazy nutrient deficiencies that are all stemming from the gut and system-wide dysfunction that you can trace back to the gut. Yeah, and like we had talked about this a little bit on the IG Live, but like some people are, you you literally tell them to like stop eating so many vegetables because those can be um, giving people like stomach pain. So I was like, oh, if I eat too many raw vegetables, like my stomach can hurt sometimes. And yeah. uh, so somebody comes in, they say to you like, my stomach like I go to the bathroom 10 times a day like and like that's a thing because I literally just heard this from someone oh and they laughed about it because they're like oh I probably go to the bathroom 10 times a day and I was like what yeah (laughs) like (laughs) yeah we we do hear that a lot and that's one of the main questions we'll ask and we're one of the few doctors that go through the checklist of essentially the bowel movements and and the frequency and the consistency and the color. Sometimes you can see, as you keep asking, people start looking at you cross-eyed and they're like, well, no one's ever like been that interested in what's coming out the other end or what's not coming out the other end. But no, those, those are questions we'll go through at length with people. Cause if someone comes in and I had one today where it's five times a day and I'm like, that's way too often. And she's like, I know like it, it's ruining my life because I have to plan my errands around it. And where's the nearest bathroom? And, kind of hesitant to do certain things in a social setting because I don't know if I'm going to be able to escape and go to the bathroom. And and so that starts to really weigh on people, you know, the mental emotional impacts, let alone how annoying it is to always have to be thinking that and, and, you know, planning your escape. So Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if someone's having a, you know, whether it's constipation or diarrhea or anything in between, like, yeah, we need to, you know, quantify. There's tons of other follow-up questions that would go to it. So I'm not going to go through the, you know, the exact breakdown I would do in a, in a history. But there's lots of other things you need to know about how that is. Like, what's the diet like? Are they chewing? Uh, past medical history is very important as well. Like we talked about with you, any illness while traveling? Or have you lived and worked in any endemic areas that you maybe have picked up some bugs that, you know, your North American system is just not accustomed to? Uh, certainly, uh, you know, if there's a gallbladder that's been removed, it's like, well, no wonder you have diarrhea because you can't digest and break down your fats. You can't deliver a concentrated shot of bile into your digestive system. So you can't eat high amounts of fat. And if you do, it's just coming out like an oil slick. No surprise that you're, you run into the bathroom. Um, and we also want to know if there's blood in the stool as well, because when I hear five to 10 times a day, you must rule out inflammatory bowel diseases as well, which is colitis and Crohn's. And that's one of the keynotes for that is just, you know, 10 plus bowel movements a day. And it's like, that is so not normal. And yeah, so lots of things to consider there, you know, so whether it's a, a SIBO breath test to determine if there's a bacterial overgrowth or a stool test to see if there's any parasites or yeast going on in there. Um, Cause quite often diarrhea can be um uh, parasites. So there's a lot of things you got to rule out with this. And, and it comes from just the art and science of the, uh, of the history intake and asking the questions and just sort of stacking all the, the data points um, to, to really kind of, you know, they always say that the, uh, the diagnosis pretty much comes from a proper history, right? So you got to get all the details from them and ask the right questions to kind of just kind of help you narrow in on what you want to focus on. And then from there, it helps you select the best diagnostic test if needed. See, it's funny that you say that because the first time I even like thought that 
potentially I could have a parasite is when we talked last week on the IG live and I was like, I just thought I had a weak stomach, right? I chalked it up to like taking too much antibiotics before we traveled and then picking up something while I was there. And then it just caused me to have a weak stomach. And I just, you know, when I travel and things like that, I just have a weak stomach, but like, can things like parasites just like lay dormant and then in certain occasions pop up? Is that even how that works? Pretty much because people will go through periods of feeling better, not so feeling good and back and forth. And you'll see it wax and wane a little bit. You absolutely will. And depending on, again, their diet, their stress level, et cetera. Yeah. So you're always just trying to go like how many good days we have and how many bad days we have. And um, sometimes it is just completely constant and steady and their life is hell. But, you know, you, you will see it bounce back and forth and, and lay dormant. I mean, a good example is a lot of the viruses we pick up. If you look at the viruses we pick up, you know, as kids, chicken pox, it just lays dormant and it's chill. You know, unless you have a dip in your immune system or there's high amounts of stress or as we age, we become more susceptible for it to rear its ugly head in the form of shingles. Right. So you see that all the time. But it always comes down to the resiliency of the body and state in that moment. Because, uh, yeah, I, I really think at, you know, at a deep level, we're, we're all full of bugs. It's two to three pounds of bugs in all of us at any given time. But it's like, what is the balance? What is the makeup of those? And then what is your just overall resiliency and immune system function on top of that? And then that sort of dictates how bad the symptoms will be, if at all. See, and I think what the issue is, is that there's not enough people like talking about it. So people don't know, like they don't know that their symptoms are not what they, sh- you know, are not normal or... Um, you know, when I was talking about my stomach acting up again, a girl at the gym was like, you know what, like for a year, I dealt with this stomach stuff. I went to see a naturopath and it was this SIBO, which I hadn't heard of until, and now like you mentioned it now, just, and she was like, yep. it was this bacteria. We got it all under control. I feel like a whole new human because like my training was suffering. I just like, I never had any energy. I just... I just felt so shitty all the time. They got it under control. And she's like, I literally feel like a new human because of it. And I just don't think that there's enough of it out there because who's talking about somebody being constipated or somebody having diarrhea or, you know, even that being bloated or going to the bathroom a lot isn't normal because people just end up living with stuff. They're just like, I guess this is just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And you ask who's talking about it. This guy's talking about it. (laughs) That's if so they I, know I you on all this all the time. And for that very reason, because it's totally under service. So I talk about this stuff all the time. And then what do you know, people reach out and they're like, wow, you know, I've been struggling with this for a while. And just kind of what you said, made a lot of sense to me, it, it hit home, right? Because you're right, sometimes people are, you know, whether there's shame around it, or they don't want to talk about it, or they don't want to bring it up. And so like, I just get on IG all the time and just blast about this is not normal, like x, y, and z that you're feeling not normal. I don't care what anyone's told you. Don't let any doctor, friend, family member tell you that just the way it's going to be because um, when you have pretty sound digestion, none of that should be happening. And so that's what I'm in the business of fixing because when you, when you sort people's gut out, they usually like you for it. And in the case of what you were just describing with your friend or uh, person at the gym you go to there, like that's pretty cool for them to just do a total 180 with that. And we see that all the time with SIBO cases. That's short for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Story short, most of your bacteria should be in your large intestine, but you can get a translocation in the small intestine. That's where you should be digesting and breaking your foods down. Now, the thing people need to get with the, the gas and bloating that just gets normalized is if you have too much bacteria in the wrong spot in your small intestine where you're digesting and breaking your food down, what will happen is your bacteria will interact with your food and then they release a gas. 
and the intestines are so sensitive to stretch that any little bit of excess gas just stretches them and expands them and that's where all the discomfort and the bloating and you'll hear girls be like I feel like I'm five months pregnant or I just wake up with a belly that's just like super distended and I have barely even eaten anything. You have like a few bites and it just puffs. That's because you have too much bacteria in the wrong spot interacting with, with your food where it should be getting digested and broken down. Meanwhile, you get all this gas release and it stretches the heck out of your intestines and you just feel like crap. Do you think... And Allah, that's that's kind of the vicious cycle you get stuck in. Do you think, and then they chalk it up to, oh, well, I just might, might be intolerant to this food or that food, when really maybe if they got the bacteria under control that they could, you know, be eating those foods? Correct. Yeah. And that's why the food sensitivity I've realized over the years, it used to kind of be like the go-to. But if you don't fix the environment and the terrain... And the ecosystem that that food is going into, you'll never fully fix it. Because these patients will describe, hey, I have like a chicken salad and it gives me bloating and gut issues. Or I have, you know, a whole pizza and same thing. So it doesn't matter if it's fast food or healthy food or everything in between. They have an ecosystem and a terrain issue. So it doesn't matter what food you send down there. Like there's just such disarray and overgrowth that until you deal with that, you're never fully going to fix it. Now, would I do the the food, you know, sensitivity removal and clean up the overgrowth at the same time? Why not? Because you're definitely going to get good results with that. So I would say it's like a two or three prong approach. It's like one, get off foods that are not agreeing with your body. Two, change the environment, the the foods going into and that starts with kind of determining um where the overgrowths are but it could also be the environment of a digestive enzyme insufficiency you could have perfectly balanced uh microbes in your system but like we were saying earlier like you could have no gallbladder so now you don't have any bile so now it's not necessarily a bacterial issue it's a digestive enzyme insufficiency and we see low stomach acid uh improperly functioning liver gallbladder and that leads to bile issues pancreatic dysfunction because the digestive system is a merge point of all those three systems, right? You got the stomach acid and the food you initially chew that goes in the small intestine. Then you get some bile that comes in, you get the pancreatic enzymes released. And if those don't all meld together properly with the food, it's not going to be broken down properly. And then improperly broken down food is basically just an irritant through your whole system. So then you get these like urgencies or diarrhea or just it triggers a dumping effect essentially because molecules aren't getting broken down properly. The merge point of those three systems, something's wrong. So have you seen like patients where you've been able to like clean up the environment and whatnot and then seen them being able to eat foods that they were thought they were intolerant to? Correct. Yeah. So as part of this treatment plan, which is usually just for a ballpark three to four months, we'll have them do the food elimination. We'll spend the one to two months to do an eradication or balancing of the system. Then you sort of phase into a gut healing uh, protocol afterwards. And then by that 90 day mark, we always say, okay, what are you missing the most? And, and they'll know right away. There's probably like four or five foods that they just haven't had in a while. And you welcome them back in and you do essentially a challenge test where you'll eat a serving of that food and you'll monitor for 72 hours how's your energy how's your digestion how's your sleep how's your you know, brain fog mental clarity all that kind of stuff it is monitor because the thing with foods in a delayed reaction sense is it, it can affect you anywhere between zero and 72 hours after consumption so it's not just immediate people always think bang it's going to be right away with a stomach ache and i'm like no it could be a lot of other things anywhere between zero and 72 hours after consumption so you got to reintroduce one food at a time observe and see and in many cases, people could bring some foods back in, but others just don't agree. Uh, and I can give you some examples to expand on that in a sec, but th that's kind of the gist. And, and I can't 
you know, say, because everything's a little bit specific patient to patient, but from a general overview, that's kind of the flow. Right. So is that something that like, okay, let's say someone's like, you know, I would love to see an ND and yes, my gut health is worth the money, but I just don't have the money right now to go see one. Is that something like, you know, taking some foods out of their diets, um, trying to like, because we did talk about last week, like, um, you know, maybe having less roughage and stuff in your diet Mm -hmm. to kind of help some things. Can people do some things at home before they see an ND? 100%. And and there's so much information on the internet. So there's some really good resources I'll direct people to right now. The Whole30, it's just W-H-O-L-E, Whole30 is a very good 30-day reset it's very much a paleo based where it takes out what's known as kind of the, the big six or seven food groups that are likely going to be a problem for the majority of the population. So it's a pretty good catch all for most people that it's like, hey, if your gut's in a knot, probably following this for 30 days will reduce symptoms significantly because it's going to cut out a decent amount of dairy, certainly nuts and seeds that are problematic, grains that are problematic, soy, corn, you know, all these things that are pretty common in the you know allergy and sensitivity world where you know just about everyone has an issue with one or more of those and so you get rid of all those for 30 days you focus on good whole foods lean proteins um, high amounts of healthy fats that kind of stuff and that is always kind of a good home base and I'm I'm a very big fan of that because I've had lots of success just uh, directing people there and using it Um, some other good resources here without spending and we talked about the roughage too and i do want to circle back to that uh i think there's just um some misinformation out there about fiber that definitely the more the merrier and and i just don't agree with that so i'll do these diet diary recalls with people or just say tell me what you ate for a day and we'll just kind of go through it together and quite often people are taking in too much so if Mm -hmm. there's a gas bloating and distension you have to remember that any fiber or roughage that you eat that's what's getting digested by your bacteria and they're going to spit a gas off so it's like Quite often, if people are going like 30, 35, 40, 45 grams of fiber a day, I find that's way too much. And I cut people like way down. I go like, cut that in half and just tell me how you're feeling. It's like 80% improvement in their digestive symptoms just from that one thing alone. And uh, some of you listening out there, probably like, but I thought fiber was good for everything and we should just take tons of it in to clean us out. And I thought that too many years ago. And there's some research that I've been diving into over this last little while from a medical doctor out of Australia. And he just kind of blew my mind wide open with fiber where they were taking chronically constipated patients that were straining. They had bowel discomfort, gas, bloating, um, you know, occasionally bleeding, hemorrhoids, like all, all the kind of stuff that, that comes from longstanding digestive problems. And they were, had test groups of high fiber, low fiber, moderate fiber and no fiber. And the lower the fiber went the more the symptoms vanished. And in the zero fiber group in this one study, all symptoms went to zero. So whether it was, um, you know, straining, constipation, bloating, um, bleeding, it, it all went away. And so I started looking at this more and I was like, are you kidding me? And then I've just been trialing it with a few of my patients. Again, I haven't taken anyone to zero, zero just yet, although there's a couple I've mentioned it to because in these real stubborn cases, I'm like, look, you, you lose nothing by trying a pretty low fiber approach just for the next little bit until we settle you down. Okay, this is not going to be a forever thing because I do believe fruits and veggies 
have uh, a purpose and, and uh, they do belong on our plates. But the thing is this, when your gut's a mess, it can't break down these hard to break down foods. That's just the easiest way to put it. Because people be like, wow, I thought broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage, I thought it was all very healthy for us. And I'm like, if your gut is in a healthy state, it is. And, and even then, I don't recommend it raw. I like it steamed and fairly well cooked. So yeah, this fiber thing is interesting. And I know you brought this up because you mm-hmm. dabble with this a little bit too, where you're just like, yeah, I was eating way too much and I feel better with less. See, and my sweet spot is between 30 and 35. I know anything over 40. I'm like super just bloated. Um, and yeah, like I do notice like, even if I'm like sitting around like that 20 to 25, I'm just like, it, things just don't like move as well. I mean, since we're getting so into things here, we might, <laughs> but like, I also have clients who, when they do their check-ins with me, um, right. Cause they always say like the, the standard for fiber is 25 grams per person. Some will be like, no, I feel best when I eat around 20 grams and, you know, and like, I don't push it. But for me, like from a nutrition standpoint, like when I'm working with people and we're looking at fiber, um, sometimes when people are eating really low fiber is just be due to the quality of food that they're eating. And that's why their fiber is so low, you know? So if we do see an increase in fiber, then I know that they're, you know, it's, they're introducing more whole foods into their regime because you can eat pretty low fiber and be eating all processed shitty foods, also making your digestion feel like crap as well. So that's where you're like 35 can be too high. And I'm like, that's my sweet spot. Like, I know that's just, you know, and everybody's different. Um, and yeah. <laughs> like, while I'm like, I could put, potentially have a parasite. I'm like, I, my digestion is generally pretty good unless I'm traveling <laughs> or if I eat too many raw vegetables, that's my other there thing. You go. So yeah, I know. And it's one of those things like, well, I never thought anything of it now, but maybe it's something now, you know, you reach out and talk to an ND about it and be like, you know, what is this? Do I have something going on? And like, I think more people maybe need to question some of the symptoms that they have and realize, yeah, that they don't have to live life. I knew someone who was telling me her sister literally was too scared to like go anywhere because she could just like shit her pants in the street. Like, I'm like, can you imagine? So she just like never ended up leaving her house. And then like you said, the mental effects, um, the mental health Uh from that is crazy. But like, it's so funny that you wrote it or that you said the gut is like the hub of all health. Cause I was like, I wrote that in my next question (laughs) and I used those (laughs) words and I was like, now I can't even say that because you already said that. It sounds like I'm copying you, but, um, the, the gut can be causing like stress, anxiety, mental health issues too. Correct. Totally. Yeah. There's a thing called the gut brain axis. I mean, there's really a gut, anything axis is a gut skin axis is a gut heart axis, but yeah, the big one that's come on the scene the last maybe five to 10 years, a lot of research being done around the gut brain axis. And basically what it says that if you have leaky gut and inflammation in your digestive system, then you're going to have an amplification of already existing anxiety, depression, or it could be the, the cause of anxiety and depression. You know, for the longest time, they would throw this blanket diagnosis out for these things. This is dating back to the 70s and 80s where these mental health things would be, oh, it's just a chemical imbalance or, oh, it just runs in the family and, and that's why you have it. 
And, and now the gut brain access research is really showing that it's like if there's inflammation in the gut, that causes inflammation in the brain. And it's very much the cause in several cases of these, these mental health um, challenges. And, and they are rampant. Let me just start by saying that, wow, as a practitioner now for the last five years, I am just stunned at how many people have low grade or high grade amounts of anxiety and depression. Because people will come in with, you know, one, two, three complaints, but then you'll always get into the past medical history. And, and, and I am just nothing short of amazed at, at how rampant it is. So I just want everyone listening out there to know that, like, you know, it, it, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It, it's very common. And there's always people that are there for you to reach out to and get help from. So I've had to learn and uh, develop a lot of good treatment plans around this stuff because I just realized how rampant it is. And so, yeah, for, for me, from a, you know, a mental health standpoint, treating these conditions, you always got to go to the gut. Never a bad idea to go to the gut because if you look at all the neurotransmitters that the, the brain needs, uh, they are uh, derived from amino acids and we get amino acids from protein. And so there's definitely a lot of research that, uh, that is pointing to amino acid deficiencies, particularly carnitine they'll find is low in major depressive disorder. And it's like, if you look at all the selective serotonin uptake re-inhibitors, a lot of the drugs they use are trying to manipulate these neurotransmitters. But if you just hit the pause button for a second and go, where do we get a lot of these neurotransmitters from? They are all built from amino acids, proteins, nutrition, tons of B vitamins, all the stuff you need to be getting from your diet helps you build what you need to balance and keep your mood stable. So I always like to throw that out there to people that, you know, you can give the whole, oh, it's just a, you know, bad genetics or just a chemical imbalance. There's nothing we can do about it. I always say there's lots you can do about it actually. And there's wonderful herbs and nutrients we use to balance people with this. There's obviously uh, cognitive behavioral therapies we use uh, acupuncture can be wonderful for this kind of stuff uh, i just don't find a lot of the the drugs for depression and anxiety to be curative they definitely will help people get through rough patches and jams in their lives and the thing i see that's the biggest pet peeve of mine is people will get put on this stuff and there's never any discussion of an exit strategy and so i'm all for it if someone's in a really rough spot um, you know, there's maybe suicidal thoughts or self-harm and, and, you know, it's, it's a tough case and you need to get some medication in. I'm all for that, getting them through that rough patch. But then people get caught on stuff for years and they'll live many years of their life as, as uh, you know, just, just kind of, you know, the zombie-like status and no one's talking to them about, hey, now that you're a little more stable, let's look to get you off this. Let's get some supportive nutrients in. Let's get that brain chemistry balancing. And I think that piece is really missing. So I always go there with people and kind of gauge where they're at with it. And, you know, if it's something that they're at peace with and they've worked through and now they're just kind of like, I don't know where to go from here. That's my next question is like, are, are you are you willing and wanting to come off this? And, and if so, let, let's start tackling a plan to do that. It's crazy. Your scope is so much larger than I think anybody realizes. Like another thing that I think people associate with naturopaths is like hormones. Like they come in, they're like, there's something wrong with my hormones. So if somebody comes in and says that to you, like what kind of symptoms are they experiencing that you, that would make them even think that their hormones are out of whack and what can be done about it? Sure. Are uh, we talking male or female? Uh, let's go female just because most of my clients are females. Okay, sure. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a buzzword too, right? Hormones. People just come in. I just think my hormones are out of whack or I want to get my hormones checked. It's kind of just, I don't want to say the flavor of the month, but like last several years, like and with anti-aging and bioidentical hormones that have just, you know, taken the, the scene by storm, it's 
certainly a word that everyone's familiar with. And then you'll, you'll see people perk up when you mention hormones or bioidentical hormones or, oh, yeah, I think I got something wrong with that. But that's where when people come in and lead with that, that's when you have to then ask, you know, there's eight to 10 really important questions to kind of go, do we need to test? Is this even a hormone thing or not? I mean, and, and let's start with PMS first in the female that's cycling. And then I can touch on menopause. Um, and I'll just branch out from that. But this is another thing, much like the digestion. If you're having horrible crippling symptoms around your cycle every month, again, not normal. And many girls will go through years and decades just thinking, you know, every month for one to five days, I'm going to feel like crap, or, or maybe I'll have to call in sick, or I'll have to take this ibuprofen to get through these cramps, breast tenderness, mood swings, cravings, headaches. Any and all of that is, is symptoms of, of, of hormonal surge that... Uh, like high levels of bleeding? I know. Yes. Excessive bleeding, cramping, uh, yeah, cravings, breast tenderness, headaches leading up to, um, you know, short fuse, mood swings. And this is very much just like spot on. They'll be able to tell you approximately when this stuff's happening. But again, uh, not necessarily a normal thing. Um, there's many things you know that can cause it. We're living in a very estrogen dominant world with the food and water supply and plastics. Um, people aren't treating their livers as well as they could be, and that's really what packages and removes and clears out all the hormones from your system. So you always need lots of attention there. If people are you know consuming too much alcohol or other medications or things that are jamming up that system, um, obviously birth control pills. Right. You know, they'll just throw these at girls trying to trying to fix their hormone symptoms and not ask the deeper questions. And obviously, if that's your primary source of birth control and it's necessary and needed, great. Um, but the, the cycle should never be crippling. And so th those are kind of some of the symptoms that we know right away. That's the hallmark sign of your, your PMS or um, that there's a cycle issue going on. And that's that's the questions we would ask to, to follow it up. And then with respect to menopause, it would be obviously absent cycle for up to a year or maybe they're in perimenopause where they're like oh like i missed two cycles and then it came back for a month and then i went you know month on month off for a little bit that that's sort of the signs and symptoms of perimenopause when that 28 day cyclical cycle starts to stop um and then of course the hot flashes and night sweats are going to be your classic menopausal symptom where just hot during the day and sweating or soaking the sheets at night um, those are kind of just sort of a brief overview where if someone says, Hey, you know, I think something's wrong with my hormones, we dive right into those questions to kind of go like, okay, do you have this? If so, how severe? There's actually a really good hormone hormone questionnaire I have. I, I should flip it to you. It's a really good document, easy for anyone to fill out. And you could even use it with your clients just to kind of gauge where they're at, like you know, in their in their cycle or and or um perimenopause, menopause, that kind of stuff. Very, very um actually well well researched set of questions and it's just a little questionnaire for them to fill out. And the reason we do that is because we don't just test because people want to test it. It has to correlate with clinical picture, I always say. Never want to just blindly do labs on people and then try and interpret it backwards. You want to paint the picture clinically and then go, okay, based off what you said and my knowledge of the body and my study of medicine, this is probably likely what's going on. Let's do this testing to confirm, build a treatment plan off that. And sometimes it's hard as a nutritionist because people come in, they'll be like, well, I can't lose weight because of my hormones, but they've chalked it up to, and maybe it's not that, um, but it's hard for you to be like, well, you know, maybe just your 
you know, you got used to a certain set of calories, you know, dieting for a bit, and now they do need to be lowered in order for you to see progress. But it's like almost immediately people go to hormones. I can't lose weight, must be hormones. Um, And like you said, there's definitely a set of questions before you want to start like testing their estrogen levels and things like that, because I, I feel like that's probably expensive too. It can add up, and then it can also sound off alarm bells too, right? Because, like I said, you could see a problem with ordering tests for no reason, and they, you know, say they have no symptoms that substantiated. It's like, and then all this weird stuff comes back, and then maybe it's good that you found it, or, or maybe then um, then it's nice that you picked up something random. But um, yeah, that's it's not the right. It's kind of like putting the cart in front of the horse. But now that you bring up the weight thing definitely weight gain uh inability to lose weight and bloating that can be a progesterone thing absolutely mm-hmm. can be 100 so if there's something happening with progesterone or a deficiency starting then those are two symptoms that could potentially cause it but you know there's other things that can cause weight gain and bloating too like you know wrong diet bad gut health certainly thyroid as well you can't balance your sex hormones if your thyroid is out and that's a very common one for for females and males i mean i see it a lot in guys too where the thyroid just slows down, right? And it directs traffic, everything below it. So that your your hormones, your metabolic rate, your temperature, your digestive secretions, like the thyroid has a role in all that. So if that slows down, then many systems will slow down and certainly weight gain and bloating and inability to lose weight is also a very much a keynote thyroid problem as well. Yeah. And I think that's why it's and I, and this is why I'm like, you know what? You need to see an ND. You need to like get all these things checked out because, you know, we can't just be like, oh, it's hormones. Or again, yeah. we can't just keep slashing calories for somebody if that's not what the issue is either. Totally. So, I mean, I people are like, well, I think that I wrecked my hormones because I was on a low diet for too long. And it's like, well, but maybe you need to dig in a little deeper with a professional and get that figured out before just like making the assumption that you did, because yeah, there's too many things that could be playing a role in it. But as far as like, okay, so ladies with menopause, same thing. Like I feel a lot of ladies and maybe it's just like that, the, the generation um, they don't maybe reach out as much as they should with symptoms and things like that. But there can be some things that alleviate some of those symptoms as well, is there not? Well, there for sure is. And it's funny you say with the reach out thing, I, I find females are usually pretty good at that. We always say that they're, they're the gatekeepers of health and they have to kick the guys in eventually. Uh when they armbar men, and I always say, you know, please don't armbar men. I want them to come willingly. <laughs> but usually, it's the women that motivate, and they they keep a pretty good pulse on it. I mean, you might see some variations in generation based on age, um, but I find generally they're you know they got an ailment or something's not right or something's feeling off. They're pretty quick to jump on it. Like I'm from um, small town Saskatchewan, though. You know, like small sure. town Saskatchewan. I feel so like what's the feel out there. Like I feel like they just like tough it out. They're just like this is just this is what it is. Like they'll maybe, they'll maybe go to their doctor. Um, and the, the doctor might prescribe something, but I would, I, you know, I wouldn't say that my, you know, mom probably reached out to an ND to see if they could help. No, you're right. They wouldn't be doing that, uh, too easily. They'd probably end up at their doctor. I guess that's where it's like, you know, just getting this word out and educating and letting people know there's some other options because, a lot of people just take their medical doctor's word at uh, face value and then just leave it at that, right? Not a lot of questioning. Hey, what else can we do? Like, are you sure? Like, is there anyone else I could speak to regarding this? Like, that dialogue usually never takes place, right? Which is why 
the biggest challenge with our profession is getting that word out there and that that educational piece is so so key so um yeah i mean it's it also has to be bad enough you know the it pain does has to be painful enough and you know unless someone's i don't want to say this in the wrong way but unless someone's in a decent amount of hell they don't usually end up in our office so by the time i see people they have seen a lot of other people and, yeah and, it's bad and they're, in, and they're in hell and and so we get some of the most difficult cases because it's like i'm into this doctor and that doctor and massage and cairo and acupuncture and it's like we're like sixth in line 80 percent of the time <laughs> yeah. and, and so they're in hell at that point yeah and i think that that's one of the like women joke about it too they're just like oh it's menopause like we'll just we'll just laugh it off and i'm like oh that sounds terrible like everything that you're going through and there's like we just i'm just gonna deal with it you know and like you said six people later they maybe finally get some answers to you know what's going on and and like you're not promising them that you'll diminish symptoms but like alleviating some of them totally and the thing with menopause is some people breeze through and some people don't, right? Other people have a really, really tough time with it. So not everyone needs like a ton of hormone support or bioidentical hormones or clean up their liver or anything like that. Like they just transition from having a steady cycle to a bit of an erratic cycle in perimenopause and then boom, they're in menopause and no hot flashes or night sweats, feeling pretty good, weights managed. All right, here we go. So not, not everyone eventually needs to go down the line, right? And then, yeah, because what's like the shortest amount of time? I don't even know this. Like I am a woman. I don't even know this. What's the shortest (laughs) amount of time that someone could be in menopause? And what's the longest amount of time? For the perimenopause, you mean like the transitional? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I'm going to be very variable. I don't even know if I have an awesome range for you on this. But typically women are going to start to notice it sometime after 45. Chinese medicine calendar would say sometime between like 47 and 49 is when most women start to notice the perimenopause stuff. But, you know, some people don't notice it till like 52, 53. And then, yeah, the question of how long they'll kick around in that for could be a year, could be two, but, you know, somewhere probably around there. Okay. A year or two. Yeah. Not like they're not like five to 10 years, like just battling it, it out. Be. Well, it could be. I mean, sometimes you'll get people noticing perimenopause as early as 45 and it's just like, but it, it's like very slight, right? Mm-hmm. Just like one or two little things, nothing crazy, but they'll notice, oh, something's changing, something's off. But, you know, ideally should be transitioning through that in a, in a couple of years is uh, is kind of the goal if you're, if you're balanced enough. Yeah. That's, I think that that is a lot of information that a lot of, and, it, and I know it sounds so funny because I'm like, I'm a girl and I don't even know this because I'm like, I think you push it to the back of your head because you're like, that's something that future Ashlyn will have to deal with. So I don't need to know that information now. But like, I think anything that we talked about today, people are like, oh yeah, like I've just been dealing with this stuff and I didn't know that I could even, you know, go see somebody about it. And I think what you said like awareness is the biggest thing and i hope if yep. anything that this has just brought some awareness to some symptoms and stuff that people may experience and then they can reach out to an totally. nd and you know maybe maybe get some answers yep well i think that's a great place to leave it cool thanks so much for coming on and taking the time to do this with me of course my pleasure that was a lot of fun Head over to my Instagram page at sweat underscore effect for all of my insights, experiences, and daily doses of goodness. Until next time, keep on having fun and keeping fit.